I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll know that climate security and climate resilience have been big themes of mine this year. Over the last couple of months, we've talked about the international climate security implications as well as what UK domestic climate security means. And well, here's another perspective. It's one I think you'll find refreshing and incredibly provocative, not just because it cuts through a lot of the abstract language in this area, but because it talks frankly about what's working and what's not working. It's a conversation about the policy ingredients that are fundamental to building climate resilience, from building codes and interagency coordination to support for scientific research and national disaster insurance programs. But it's also a sobering reflection on what happens when climate change becomes politicized and how the current U.S. administration is undercutting many of the policy efforts that my next guest helped establish while serving in the Obama White House. This episode should bring to mind a lot of unanswered questions like, why are many U.S. city commissions rejecting the idea of coastal retreat despite the evidence for rising sea levels? And why do we keep insuring the same houses in flood-prone areas? What will it take for insurance premiums to start embedding long-term climate risk? Look, I've got to tell you, when I first edited this, I couldn't help but recall that old line that the definition of insanity is repeating the same mistakes and expecting different results. Well, there's a strong case for why that is exactly what's happening around our response to climate change. And while continuing to kick the can down the road will only carry tail risk implications for the future. It's why I'm so excited to have our next guest on the show, Alice Hill. Having been there firsthand in the Obama White House architecting the U.S. domestic response to climate change, Alice is uniquely positioned to speak on this topic. Alice currently is Senior Fellow for Climate Change Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. She served at the White House as Special Assistant to President Barack Obama and Senior Director for Resilience Policy on the National Security Council. Alice was a member of President Obama's climate team and led the creation of national policy regarding catastrophic risk and the impacts of climate change. Prior to joining the White House, she served as senior counselor to the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. So if you're interested in this area, keep an eye out for Alice's new book, Building a Resilient Tomorrow, Preparing for the Coming Climate Disruption co-authored with Leo Martinez-Diaz and published by Oxford University Press out in October next month. Welcome to the show, Alice. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to join you. Excellent. So I would love to start out on your background because the bio that I just read sort of does you uh, a little bit short. You started out in law as a California judge. You went from white-collar crime into policy and politics. How did that happen? How did that arc evolve? I started my legal career uh, essentially as a federal prosecutor, and I didn't pursue white-collar crooks. One uh, who was quite notorious in the 90s, uh, Charles Keating Jr., it was the largest bank fraud in the history of the United States at the time. 
And then I moved over to be a California judge, and uh, I had a major career pivot, and my answer to people for that is be nice to those you sit next to in law school. I sat next to (laughs) Janet Napolitano, who became uh, President Obama's Secretary of Homeland Security. I'm proud to say that before she accepted the job, she asked me if I would join her in Washington, which I did. I became her senior counselor, and then I had the chance to start working on climate change. I had never worked on the issue before. Hmm. So I found that uh, a background in economics, I was an economics major in college, my legal background, uh, the finance uh, expertise I gained as a white-collar crime prosecutor, really helped me in understanding the nature of the risk of climate change. And also, as a judge, you become a student of human nature, uh, because particularly when it comes to criminal conduct, so much of it is motivated by emotions and other interests than are immediately apparent. When I first started working on climate change, it was as a result of an executive order that President Obama had issued in 2009, one of his first on climate change. It called for all federal agencies to engage in sustainability planning as well as adaptation planning. I was sitting around a large conference room, brand new to the Department of Homeland Security. The senior leadership was assembled, and we learned about this executive order. I remember looking around the table, and somebody said, it was clear nobody wanted it from their body language. They didn't want to have to do this uh, executive order. So they looked around the table, and somebody said, oh, let's give it to her. She's new. (laughs) So uh, I had spent uh, a quarter of a century in Los Angeles where the um, temperatures really just toggle between two degrees, And I did not understand uh, climate change. I thought two degrees meant two degrees Fahrenheit. I thought that uh, how could it be that bad? That's what Los Angeles is like. Uh, We have a a little bit of increase every day. So I worked with a team. We assembled a task force at the Department of Homeland Security. The Department of Homeland Security is the largest federal agency uh, other than the Department of Defense. It was born out of the events of September 11th. Its focus is terrorism. Mm. But it also has the Emergency Management uh, Administration, FEMA. It has uh, Coast Guard, uh, so that's our uh, patrolling our maritime borders. It has uh, also responsibility for our land borders, uh, customs, and our immigration authorities. The question our task force had to tackle was, this is 2009, Should a large security organization like the Department of Homeland Security even care about climate change yet? Is it so far off in the future that there's really nothing for us to do at this time? We worked with the Navy Task Force Climate Change, and we were able to learn from their expertise. Our task force concluded that we needed to care deeply about climate change. As a result of that work, I was eventually invited to join the White House, where I continued working on climate resilience and climate adaptation. Hmm. So the word resilience is interesting. Um, we tend to use climate security, resilience, and other terms sort of interchangeably. But why is resilience useful? 
Um, Does it, I guess what I'm wondering is, does it not in your mind carry the stigma from a partisan perspective that, that climate change, climate risk carries in the United States? Resilience is a very useful word, it turns out. In fact, when I started this work, I remember people asked me, what does resilience mean? Because internationally, groups working on preparing for the impacts of climate change had called it adaptation. But uh, with the political divide and also in other areas, the word resilience grew in popularity. If you do a Google word search, you'll see that it started the first identified use of the word was by a, a Scots a Scotman, Scotsman uh, in maybe 1790. He was a polymath. Uh, I don't recall his name, but uh, they traced the word to him. It goes along flat. It's a little like our emissions. There's a steep hockey curve uh, on the use of that word. In the United States, where we are so politically divided, climate change, unfortunately, unfortunately has turned into a matter of belief, not science. Resilience is a safe word for politicians to use when they want to avoid the climate change debate. So we see resilience task force all over the country. It's uh, a little unfortunate that sometimes those task force do not address the future risk of climate change, more than a little. It's actually quite dangerous because as they work towards resilience, if they don't consider sea level rise, they will not be particularly safe if they're along our coasts. At what level of the government does resilience resonate the most? I mean, I think of cities, towns where you need the infrastructure, but is it is it as strong at the federal level? It's a well-used word. My title at the White House was Special Assistant to President Obama and Senior Director for Resilience on the National Security Council. That position, even under President Trump, still stands. The federal government hasn't gotten to a definition of resilience. It's been a struggle. When I first started working on this issue, we discovered that there were multiple definitions. I concluded with my team that we could spend the rest of our time in public service trying to come to a a definition that all of us agreed on, but we concluded that wouldn't be a good use of our time. So I'm not very strict in the definition. To get back to your question, I view it as an ability to prepare and plan for, absorb, recover from adverse events. Many other definitions out there, I think it's less important what the definition is. It's much more important about what we do in our efforts to achieve resilience. So let's talk about the ingredients within resilience. What has to happen? What has to align for there to be real, credible resilience? I I see through a lot of your articles, you talk about the right kind of policy, um, the right kind of agency support or building codes or partnerships or support for the scientific community. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. It, of course, depends on which entity we're talking about and what role they can play. So let's start with the federal government. The federal government, in terms of climate resilience, can provide great data. It can do fundamental or support fundamental science to understand climate risk. And it can also help small communities understand their risk and provide resources. It can incentivize good behavior. For example, awarding additional funds to a community that wants to raise 
a bridge so it avoids future flooding. They could give that incremental cost that will be incurred as a result of raising the bridge to incentivize climate resilience. The federal government has a role within the United States, but most of the decisions that are determined by climate risk are made at the state and local level. So the state governments, the municipal governments, need to have the tools to accomplish their work. In the United States, we have no national building code. It's a patchwork of building codes state by state, some city by city. And in some instances, we find cities who have favored lax building codes in the hopes that they will attract greater development. And, of course, that can come at significant risk. It did for the state of Florida in the 90s. Hurricane Andrew in 1992 caused that state to have what I call a no more moment. Huge devastation, $25 billion, uh, thousands of homes lost. And the state then put in place one of the strongest building codes for wind in the United States. Similarly, uh, we've seen after Harvey, Uh, The federal government, I've led the development of a federal flood risk standard that would have required all federal investments into, say, a home or uh, into a building to elevate those buildings if they were constructed in or near a floodplain. President Trump, uh, 10 days before Hurricane Harvey struck Houston, rescinded that order that President Obama had signed establishing the flood risk standard. And 50 inches of rain fell in a few days' time on Houston, a -a flat-as-a-pancake city with a lot of hardscape uh, and, of course, terrible flooding. Hmm. Eight months later, Houston created their own uh, resilient building code for flooding. So uh, that will – the federal government can incentivize uh, state and local groups to do better, uh, but it also has a significant role in providing the best information and certainly downscaled information for smaller communities. And, of course, the private sector can play a role here in terms of modeling the best behavior as well as uh, being leaders within their own communities to help those communities overcome the political obstacles to better resilience. I definitely want to come back to the private sector, so we'll put a pin in that. But if you had to put a grade on where we are today, if you had to issue a report card, where do you think we are in terms of overall preparedness? D minus to an F. Has it been falling over the last two years under the current administration? Has it ever been a decent grade? Well, these risks have really materialized uh, quickly. In fact, uh, I think it's dramatic in just the last five years uh, how many losses we've seen. So we've been surprised a number of times. But shame on us if we continue to be surprised that events exceed what we've seen in the past. That's what climate change does. So I think there were good efforts in the Obama administration, but that was the first time the federal government was really looking at preparing for climate impacts. President Trump has chosen to rescind the federal flood risk management standard. He just um, rescinded NEPA. That's our environmental policy uh, protections that would have required agent or federal agencies to look at climate a- impacts. He has also rescinded an executive order requiring our agencies 
to plan for the national security risks of climate change, migration, uh, um, the failure of states as a result of uh, severe climate impacts there, as well as the humanitarian disasters. So in terms of climate change, the Trump administration uh, does not embrace uh, the term. It has uh, fairly systematically removed it from major strategic documents, including the strategic document for our Federal Emergency Management Association, as well as our national security strategy. So uh, any efforts to prepare are not called climate change. In fairness to the Trump administration, Congress and President Trump did pass the bill, a National Disaster Recovery Act provision that says that 6% of what we spend on disaster recovery every year will be used for risk mitigation. So that could be, in the recent years, about a billion dollars a year. So um, that's very important. But on the countervailing factors, uh, he just issued this week an executive order, President Trump did, about low-income housing, uh, directing agencies to um, essentially uh, get rid of what he termed cumbersome building codes. Building codes are one of the best ways for us to prepare for climate impacts in the near future. Yeah, it's, it's a common thread in your articles that about the current administration undermining a lot of what was built. And I guess what I wonder is when we think of institutions and the ruin that can happen, the damage and what needs to be rebuilt, what does that mean in this context around U.S. policy? How much damage is he doing? It's significant. Um, if I talk to my friends in federal government who are career uh, federal employees – and in my experience, I have to say, the career people who've dedicated their lives to public service are, for the most part, extremely hardworking and care deeply about doing the right thing for their country. They will tell you it's very difficult to work on climate at this time. Basically, they don't want climate on any documents because it attracts attention. If that's the case, as federal employees go out and do their work in the field with local communities, there isn't that much discussion about climate risk. And during this period, whether four years the president is in power and if it could be another four years, uh, there's a significant amount of work that will be done. Many billions of dollars of infrastructure that is at risk of not being resilient. Hmm. Simply the bridge is too low. Unfortunately, it's not hard to find bad examples of recent construction in the United States where people forgot or chose not to consider the future impacts of, say, a facility that was designed to last 50 to 100 years. Yeah. And this idea of relitigating climate change on a national level or even a global level via Dr. Happer at the National Security Council, really? That's what I have to say, really. Um, it seems so odd given where the rest of the world is. Uh, and unfortunately, President Obama tried very hard to be a leader in this space, both on mitigation of emissions, but he also tried to, in 2013, he created the Climate Action Plan, which drove efforts within the United States on the preparedness or resilience side. 
but um, it has been a major rollback uh, of those efforts. And as you know, these are very important years for us on our mitigation of emissions. They're also important years in terms of our resilience. One thing that doesn't get talked about a lot is that we know that buildings emit a very large portion of carbon, particularly concrete. Well, if you keep getting buildings wiped off the face of the map from wildfire, you get the emissions from wildfire, plus we have to rebuild more emissions. Uh, similarly, from uh, hurricanes, this is not a good pattern for either cutting the carbon or keeping the public and our community safe. I guess I would have thought, though, at a base level, there's got to be something attractive to building resilience, building infrastructure, whether it's gray or green, for any politician, including Trump. I mean, he's a property guy. And so I just think that absent that label of climate change, it means more stimulus. Um, it's something that you know the Democrats could wrap their arms around. Why doesn't that take off? Well, I, there is great desire in the United States to improve our infrastructure. You hear it from President Obama. You hear it from both Republicans and Democrats. Our American Society of Civil Engineers has, gives us a grade across the nation. It's a D-plus uh, right now for the condition uh, of our infrastructure. But frankly, I do not believe in the United States that there is a deep understanding of the nature of climate risks. You see that in our recent Democratic debates. Uh, if you went across the candidates, a few seem to have knowledge of what the climate risks. Many went back to talking about carbon emissions, which is important, very cri critically important, but they weren't really talking about flooding and wildfires. Um, and similarly, when you have a federal government that's stepping back from talking about what's accelerating these risks, that means that for state and local governments, there may be little reward for them to discuss or deal with the issues, which means we are going to and continue to build infrastructure that will seem idiotic in a short amount of time. Just this week uh, in Arkansas, they had very severe flooding. Uh, two years ago, they also had very severe flooding uh, in a county uh, named after George Washington, Washington County. Uh, two years ago, the flooding severely damaged a major bridge. Uh, so the quote in the paper earlier this week from one of the local leaders um, was, wow, in 2019, that bridge got wiped out again right now, and it was unexpected. Not really. Uh, if they knew about what the projections were for extreme precipitation and flooding, they would have known that they could raise that bridge, reinforce it, and should have. And, of course, we've already spent federal dollars rebuilding it the first time, and now, rightfully, there may be some question whether there's more federal money to rebuild it again. We need to find a way to incorporate future risk in our design, planning, operation, maintenance of infrastructure. Yeah, why has the risk analysis been so bad? There's a few anecdotes in some of your last articles that pop out. I think they're really telling. Um, but you mentioned in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, a house you know that's appraised at $56,000 has been insured for more than $400,000. Another house in Houston, Texas, uh, worth $72,000 um, that's seen over a million dollars worth of flood you know, insurance payouts. Um, it's the same mistake again and again and again. 
why aren't we learning from these mistakes? Well, I think it's politics that we're not learning. Um, in the 1960s, the United States had a very severe flooding problem. Insurers wanted to get out of insuring flood risk. So, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The federal government said, okay, we're going to step in and create this national flood insurance program. The program is bankrupt as of June. Uh, it's $21 billion in the red. It just, Congress just gave it $16 billion, but it's $21 billion. We're, we're having massive flooding right now, as I mentioned. Uh, so we'll, that'll be probably even bigger numbers shortly. But under that program, uh, it is allowed that the federal government continues to insure properties that have repeatedly flooded. There have been efforts to reform the National Flood Insurance Program. The premiums that the federal government charges in many instances are not actuarially sound. That is, they do not reflect the true flood risk. But in 2012, when Congress successfully on a bipartisan basis passed legislation to reform the National Flood Insurance Program and actually charge actuarially sound premiums, there was a huge political backlash. There were reports of a firefighter's premiums going from something like $500 a year to $12,000. Both sides, Democrats and Republicans, quickly backpedaled. Those reforms were pulled back, and now uh, that program just seems to get kicked down the road. People talk about reform, but we have not successfully accomplished it. In the United States, as you're probably aware, in 2017 and 2018, we had very severe wildfires. In fact, the wildfires in the last five years have been as damaging as the wildfires in the previous 37 years. It is a growing threat to the United States. We see in California some indication that insurers uh, may not want to continue to insure. So one of the fears is we're going to get to a national wildfire insurance program. Very difficult uh, for us to see uh, how we maintain the solvency of that. Yeah. I should just add that because of these risks, our crop insurance, our flood insurance, our watchdog, the Government Accountability Office, puts climate risk as one of the high risks to our U.S. Treasury. It's just something that we cannot continue to pay for in a way without causing great strain on the federal government. So have you heard any ideas or any solutions about how to reconcile this issue? No one wants to see their premiums go up. Everyone wants the status quo despite a new normal climate. Um, at the same end, you've called out, you know, instances around coastal retreat. We saw this, I, I think you'd mentioned, uh, in Del Mar, California. I think we'd seen this during a hurricane in North Carolina as well. But um, once you have insurers really start to price risk, you know, more accurately, more credibly, you're talking about a big hit to home equity values, which no one wants to see. Absolutely. I mean, it's a I tough pill, yeah. <laughs> it's a tough pill. I remember um, conversations when I was in the White House that you do not want the real estate market to just flip all at once. That's not good for anybody. But how do we accomplish incorporating this risk in a smooth manner? 
It appears that our credit rating agencies are really not downgrading debt yet based on the risk. Miami continues to enjoy high bond ratings. Norfolk, Virginia continues to enjoy relatively high bond ratings because even though they are both at severe risk from inundation, sea level rise inundation and uh, greater storm surge, it's interesting to ponder when will that occur because at some point both of those cities will literally be underwater. Some portions are already. And I guess the next question naturally is what portions? Because one area that, that I've looked into and you've written about is the inequality implications. I've thought about it in terms of what resilience infrastructure is being built and what interests or communities are being protected. In some cases, uh, the big U seawall in New York, it's Wall Street at the expense of other areas in New York. In uh, Jakarta, the great Garuda seawall potentially will displace the poorest. So there's that dimension, but you also touch on this really interesting dimension, which is evacuations are costly. You know, to what degree these kinds of disasters exacerbate inequality, you know, given some people can afford evacuating, being displaced for a time, while others certainly can't, particularly renters. Yes, there is a major challenge in these extreme events, but there's also a challenge in the slow-moving events for those are most vulnerable, including the disabled. They just can't move, or and if If we require elevation of homes, that really isolates the disabled. They can't get up and down those stairs. Uh, So how are we going to address this? As you pointed out, many Americans don't even have $400 uh, for an emergency. Uh, There was another study that renters don't have $2,000 for evacuations. Uh, So we have the risk that we saw in Katrina. Many of the poor get left behind because they simply don't have the private transportation. Uh, Some households in New Orleans had two to three vehicles, but most of the people who were left behind had no private vehicles, so they didn't evacuate. How does the federal government address that? Similarly, we haven't really, on a local planning basis, made sure that there's proper ingress and egress from areas at great wildfire risk. And that was one of the things that exacerbated the tragedies that we saw in Paradise, California, when people couldn't evacuate quickly during the wildfires. We also have poor early warning systems. And frankly, this is where human nature comes in. We don't really understand what makes for a good warning. People tend to discount them. Uh, They're optimists. They think it's not going to happen to them. And we are, as politicians, as political beings, very concerned about a false alarm because you have millions of people getting on a road somewhere and then nothing happens. That politician may not have a job again. So it's very complex. One of the things that is desperately needed is greater understanding of what does motivate good behavior in this area, as well as safety nets for the most vulnerable We need to be planning better uh, for them in extreme events, including, for example, in extreme heat events where we know the socially isolated are much more likely to die. So let's go to the election. You touched on it, the fact that there are a lot of definitions about what the right way to address climate change is among the candidates. One suggestion or one proposal, the Green New Deal, is incredibly ambitious. 
that's certainly become a target for a lot of Republicans and even some Democrats. Um, but it does one thing that's interesting, which is it sort of combines social ambitions alongside the environmental ambitions. And one thing that I've seen that has worked, not as ambitiously, but certainly worked in, in parts of Europe is something called the just transition. You're combining social objectives alongside environmental objectives. And so when you look at Spain and Germany, both those countries have made the ambitious call to phase out thermal coal over the next decade. Alongside that, there's been the recognition that alongside these stranded assets uh, are stranded communities. And these communities tend to be small, but they tend to be very well organized. And so how can you bring them alongside? How can you include them in terms of retraining, in terms of retirement, to get to that climate change policy outcome that you want? Well, it's it's difficult. Um, we certainly see war coal in the United States, that uh, there are a lot of coal miners and others who say, I want my child to have that experience here. But um, just as we're going to be having a transition to clean energy, we need to have a transition for those involved in the fossil fuel industry. What's forgotten is that there's tons of opportunity. Humans tend to overvalue loss and undervalue the benefit that will be gained. I think that, frankly, is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to make progress in climate change, because people like the people in Del Mar see that uh, by talking about sea level rise, even though if they make choices now, they could better protect themselves, it will hurt them and hurt their property value. We saw that in Hoboken, New Jersey, when they had a seawall after Sandy, uh, that the federal government was going to pay for at enormous expense. Homeowners didn't want it because it would hurt their views. We have to look at uh, the gains to be had uh, and engage in deep stakeholder engagement, uh, to use a a buzzword, uh, with those communities to help them understand what is ahead. It's not just the fossil fuel industries that are hurting. Take industries like skiing, fishing, all these things that are dependent on certain conditions will no longer thrive, at least where they are right now. So there's a lot of work to be done. It's not easy. And I'm not sure if we have the answers yet. I would add that on the Green New Deal, I think it's been effective in providing a rallying point for talking about climate change. If you actually read the document, um, there is fodder there for criticism in that it's not really a plan. It's an assemblage of ideas, but it has sparked a necessary conversation, and it's required politicians to better articulate what their views are on climate change. So let's talk about your book uh, coming out in October this year, Building a Resilient Tomorrow, Preparing for the Coming Climate disruption. That sounds ominous. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, uh, I have a co-author, uh, Leo Martinez, uh, who was with me uh, during the Obama administration. He worked at uh, the Treasury Department. And uh, I don't think it's ominous. Our goal was to actually find uh, the hope that there is uh, for action now to better prepare us to withstand uh, climate impacts. 
just as with cutting carbon emissions, there is so much that we could do now to leave us in a much better position going forward. I have to say that anyone who works on resilience, at least uh, for any length of time, quickly concludes that the most important thing we could do is to cut emissions. But now, because the impacts are coming and they're becoming stronger, we need to do both because we won't be economically strong if we don't prepare for the impacts of climate change. And economic strength will ease our ability to transition to cleaner fuels. The book provides policy ideas, and we call them prescriptions and provocations for how to do better in a variety of areas. We look at the markets. We've talked a bit about that. The law, where, which could be a powerful lever in advancing resilience. How do we fund the necessary costs that are involved? Human nature, uh, and how do we get around our reliance on availability bias? If we haven't seen it, then that means it won't happen. Our optimism bias, it won't happen to us as well as looking at some of the things that are truly the disruptors, the threats to national security, migration, health risks, things that are underappreciated right now but um, will quickly materialize into significant threats that all nations will have to devote resources and time to address. Yeah, I'm wondering, resilience is, it feels intrinsically constructive positive going forward. As you wrote this, how much did you weigh using that kind of language with, I'm thinking David Wallace Wells, you know, sort of his book and the fact that he made this conscientious effort to be as realistic and sometimes fatalistic as possible when talking about scope, severity, and speed of what could happen? The threat we're facing is existential. There is no question in my mind after spending a decade working on this threat and having through my career, uh, as we talked about earlier, the opportunity to work on a wide range of threats. But we need to find the will and the motivation to act because we can have a better outcome if we do rally and focus. If we are focused only on the dark side, again, human nature, it could cause us just to abandon the efforts and to give up in despair. In fact, one of the things we cover in our book is one of the risks of climate change is the depression and the mental health risks that come from the impacts. So I think it's important to be honest about what is anticipated ahead, but it's also important to show people that there are things we can do now to make ourselves safer and our children and their children, and that to give up in the face of this very large looming threat that, unlike uh, nuclear, which requires someone to push a button, no one has to do anything, and this we will be experiencing the impacts of climate change. We need to find ways to move forward. We know that optimism helps people move forward, so we need to focus on the things that they can do so they feel that they should do them. That's a great segue to the last question, which 
is about the younger generation. A good part of the audience that listens to this podcast, uh, they're students. Um, they're interested in all different veins of sustainability, whether it's on the policy side or, or on the finance side, the markets side. Given your background uh, and the path that you chose, what advice would you give them? Well, I would give them the advice that if they are interested, they should pursue work on climate change. It's the full employment act. <laughs> there will be jobs on some aspect of climate change available for everyone. So if you're interested in engineering, you can be working on building codes. You can be working on finding solutions in the built environment. If you're uh, interested in law, uh, I believe that that will be uh, a huge area of litigation and uh, corporate advice, uh, how to comply with uh, new requirements of disclosing risk. If you are interested in economics or finance, uh, how do we pay for this is going to be a major challenge. We've talked about the social sciences, uh, looking at behavioral economics. So the enormous opportunity ahead. The other thing I find interesting about climate change, or at least the period that I have had the privilege of working on this issue, and I can mark it, it was June 2009 that I started, so it's a decade, is that no one knows who the experts are in this area. Initially, it was the climate scientists, but the climate scientists, because of their study, focus on the uncertainties and aren't as focused on the policy. Now it's unclear who the experts are, and in some ways that means it's open to anyone who is willing to learn about the issues, work hard, and bring their skills, their knowledge, and their enthusiasm to getting the job done. So I think that it's a great chance to feel good about helping your communities, your nation, the globe, on finding solutions while also being gainfully employed. Great. Well, that's a fantastic message to end on. Um, look, so it's been fascinating to unpack what resilience represents, how the public and private sectors are thinking about it, and why it's vital to developing the climate policy and science that helps us deal with catastrophic risks like flood and fire in the future. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and views. I'm Jason Mitchell co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Alice Hill. Many thanks for joining us on Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks, Alice. Thank you. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us, and special thanks to everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash responsible dash investment or look for us on iTunes.